0: This is the Daily Roll Call Podcast. Talk of Tennessee with Kathy Hinners. Welcome to the Daily Roll Call Show. I'm your host, Kathy Hinners, along with our co-host, Dave Vance. Uh, we have so much to talk about today. Um, you know, and, and as we're watching America and our cities burn and protest and mayors and governors are making some huge errors, um, you know, we're going to want to talk about that. But first, I think we can all agree that finding the candidates that represent the values and morals of Tennesseans is extremely important. Uh, this year, we know that there's many seats available, so it's kind of vital we research and educate ourselves on who will be best to fill those. Our first guest is someone I believe would serve honorably and be all about fulfilling his duties. Uh, welcome, Doug Englund. Uh, Doug, you have a fascinating background, um, so please share that with our listeners. And then also, you know, why do you feel so you serve retired better out of the Army than uh, Bill Powers?
1: Ago. uh to date. After 33 years of serving, I started out as a private, came in and enlisted right out of high school, and here I am, 33 years later, running for state senate here, District 22, which is Montgomery County, Houston County, and Stewart County here in Tennessee. And I'll get into the demographics of the uh, the three counties here shortly, but I have had a very unique career. Hit of, uh, you know was was bored in high school. Uh my dad was Air Force. I was born at Berksham Air Force Base. Granddad was a World War II vet, so my, my dad served in Vietnam. So it's just it's just in, kind of in our blood. It was always in the background as mm-hmm. as the standard. Uh my granddad always told me that, you know, you 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 grow up and you're an adult when you have children, but you become a man when you are faced with war. Mm-hmm. And uh you know, I never really really knew what that meant until I ended up with my first child. Now I have four children, all adults now, and I have served uh, over in nearly seven years worth of conflict. That's how long I've been downrange in Iraq, Afghanistan, and many other places in the world. Oh man! So 34 combat tours just since 9-11. I mean, I was deployed in Kosovo, Bosnia, Desert Storm prior to that. So I probably have about 50 total deployments in my 33 year career. Oh
0: my
1: goodness! Uh, it equals up to about nine and a half, nine and a half years of that 33 years I have been away from my wife in a imminent danger or conflict area. So, I've seen my share of famine, uh, de- you know, destruction, derelict, uh, you know, just cities, uh, genocide, everything. I've seen it down to where uh, I've been in camps where you see a lot of uh, immigration camps. Uh, that are trying to get into registry to get here to the US. So 22 years ago, I joined the, the I've been in flying uh, helicopters for a while. To, 22 years ago, I joined the special operations world and ended up being the, the lead pilot and, and was a part of various uh, very, some very high, is very high value targets out there. Uh, one of them being uh, associated in being the, the flight leader for the, uh, the bin Laden raid. And so some things like that, it's not just, it is it is very gratifying. Uh, there are men and women out there in service today that are doing things much more dangerous than what we did that night. It's just the stakes were high that night. And mm-hmm. so the responsibility was high. So those are the things that sets that apart from a lot of others. But it is not to discredit those that are risking our lives today and our and police officers that are risking their lives today. And we, we can get into that here shortly. So it basically, when, when you achieve well in the military, you move up. And moved up to be uh, the chief of uh, the warrant officers at Fort Bragg, special ops. And then I ended up finding myself in uh, the Pentagon and was asked to pass legislation, change uh, regulations and policy for the Army, uh, for the National Guard, Reserves, and active duty. So it's one point one million men and women, and I had roughly thirty five thousand of those that were warrant officers that I was uh reforming their uh their life so it was very interesting, but I had to know how all one point one million operated and so from the funding resourcing uh selection uh accessions everything across the gamut on how to how to manage a one point one million Person army. If if you put the army as a GDP, they were the with the the army is the number is the fifty third largest GDP in the world. Just the army. Wow. It's not the Air Force and Marines. It's just the army. So having that perspective, it really it teaches you perspective. So my career um, and my beautiful wife. We've been married. We'll be celebrating our thirty second anniversary this year. Uh, we went to uh, high school together. I'm a year ahead of her, and we have stuck it out. And you know, not every day is 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 a bed of roses. You have to work for it. You have to remind yourself that uh, that you love each other. Raised four children. My son uh, flies helicopters for the Kentucky Guard. He's completed a tour in Iraq already, which is nerve wracking as a as a parent who's been downrange many times. I bet. <laughs> uh, I have a 27 year old daughter a 21-year-old daughter turns 22 in, in about a week, and a 19-year-old daughter. So three of them have graduated college already, and one's uh, starting her second year of college. So, you know, sometimes leading by example and just keeping a standard and prioritizing what it needs mm-hmm. to be done to raise kids is my recommendation to adults these days. When you're raising children, not everything is the priority. Everything matters, but not everything is a top priority. It's a good way to look at it. That's, that's where I'm at. So it, it, and it framed who I am. So what molded me was not just that I can follow orders, shoot a gun, fly a helicopter. Uh, I'm pretty good at shooting a gun, by the way. Um, <laughs> I, it's, I bet. Those things, <laughs> it's things about the military <laughs> after 33 years. It teaches you framework. It teaches you structure, loyalty, teaches you really the difference between right and wrong.
0: Because
1: mm-hmm. you are indoctrinated into the military, it takes three years to develop a cultural character, to understand right and wrong, and under, understand what order and discipline really is. So when the bullets start flying, you don't have to ask people what to do and ask them to charge that hill. You tell them to charge the hill. Because you know order and discipline goes a long way. Sure. What it also means that performance is everything. I, was, I had an annual performance review, and the reason why I mentioned this, you never remain stagnant. You never remain comfortable with where you're at. You're always trying to improve your foxhole. You're always trying to improve where you're at and try to do better than you did yesterday. It's loyalty to the people. It's loyalty to your sisters and brothers left and right of you, you know, regardless of what their background is, because there's a mission to be done. And if you have a higher cost, according to the Constitution. So having that understanding of what truly, of what liberty truly is, because I've seen countries that have no freedom, mm-hmm. no liberty whatsoever. I was offered the ultimate and highest position in, in the army, even higher than one that I was, I was, uh, I was, uh, in at the, at the Pentagon. And I, uh, actually turned it down. Because I wanted to come back to Tennessee, even though we've lived here for 22 years. I've been working there for the last 18 to 20 months. I wanted to stop, use what I've learned, come to Tennessee. I really was inspired by Mark Green for the position he was in. And noticed there was a significant gap since we lost Mark Green, you know, coming out of that position. So we've had a huge gap mm-hmm. since he left. But people are the ones that are suffering it. And I absolutely feel like I have the right tools to fix that and get us on track and get our state back to where it needs to be. I'm only one of 33 senators or will be one of three, 33 senators. But I guarantee if you get a guy with high moral courage to come in there and stand up to the process, others are going to follow. And
0: that's, that's what we need, Doug. And I'm sure that's one of the reasons why, you know, you've chosen to do this uh we we watch um you know men and women running their campaigns and they seem to say all the right things at the right time uh, you know but then as you pointed out the loyalty is so important to your constituents and i think that's just ingrained in you as a military officer and um you know that that's just a fantastic uh several years of a of a resume i mean that's that's so impressive and i think it's very important for our elected officials to have some military experience. I think that's, that's just you bring so much more to the table than, than just someone who has no idea how structure and loyalty and respect and, and you know, all those things come together and will shine. And, and so I think that's wonderful. Now, one of my questions, though, you know, we saw thousands uh, descending on Nashville last weekend for, you know, a peaceful protest. But that eventually turned violent towards the end. Um, how do you feel, you know, the mayor and the governor uh, handled this? And, and how would you have, you know, maybe done that things a little different?
1: Let's take a step back. This is how my mind works. Uh, resourcing needs to be dedicated towards predictive analysis. Uh, you know, a pandemic is not a surprise. And we'll get into that here shortly. a a racial riot situation is not a surprise. Mm -hmm. This should not be shocking to us because uh, we were just one bad cop away from another violent situation like this. We are, whether it be a situation where it was was wrongful doing or it was perceived to be wrongful doing. And so to me, we should have been well ahead of this. As in, the uh, when it comes to statutes and, and the budget, the budget needs to be pushed. So I, when it comes to passing the budget as a state senator, we need to be thinking of these things on how can we prepare the state of Tennessee for crisis. Pandemics, tornadoes, riots, uh, dirty bombs, terrorist attacks, mm-hmm. things like that. Are we even ready? Have we assessed ourselves to figure out if we're ready to deal with this? And so our mayor, our mayors that have wrongfully reacted to this and the governor, they themselves aren't mentally prepared or physically prepared to, to get after this. So when this mm-hmm. right happens, there, there should be a briefing. It should be, you know, pull the book off the shelf, riots 101, and start going through. Guess what? Oh, hey, a year and a half ago, we we rehearsed this. We know what mm-hmm. to do. It's the level right now. It's becoming violent. we got to call the National Guard and bring them in. We need to actually start a, a reserve deputies, get them involved. And guess what? They're trained on how to react to, to riots. So we need to brief. And here's how I think about this. When it comes to rights, there's wrong, right, and just illegal.
0: Mm-hmm. Now,
1: I do know it's wrong. Racial profiling, racial discourse, racial injustice. And that's, that's both ways. Being in the military, I've seen racial unjust and racial profiling go both ways. And I will tell you, it has been 100% intolerable. It is a no-tolerant zone when it comes to racial discourse. It, right. You get yourself kicked out of the military because of it. But it's easy to handle that because the pro- it, you, kick it, you kick them out of the military, but the problem is they go back into society. And now society has to do with it, and there's nothing in society that's going to correct that. Uh, mm-hmm. Other than maybe evolution, maybe just time. But so we know that's wrong. We we know it's illegal. So what's wrong is that racial discourse. So it's not illegal to go out there and have those racial slanders during protest. We know that they can protest. People can protest. They can say the nastiest thing. It is freedom of speech unless it's part, you know, indicative of a hate crime or it's indicative of a, of a threat. Then you right. start crossing the line. Then there's there are legal statutes for that. So as soon as it becomes illegal, murder, vandalism, looting, arson, all those things that, that are against a statute, that's where you draw the line. Right. I mean, New York under Giuliani was the safest city in the United States. Yeah, Because as soon as it hit that threshold and they were trained for that, Good luck trying to ride in in New York and look what's happening now yeah uh, it's what happens is when you have leaders in our state governments, and you can see it like with uh, the Governor of New York, that don't have it as a priority, and this whole thing that everybody is treated equal, especially the ones that are conducting illegal acts. They just now separated themselves from everybody that should be treated equal. They should not be treated equal at that time of point. They've Mm -hmm. committed an act. So so you deal with the illegal functions. Um, Then you do the right thing. Then you start social reform, accountability for those, and you do make change. And you let the public know that we were not prepared for this. So I think the governor needs to say we're not prepared for this. It is not right. We, we're putting our law enforcement in harm's way because we're not empowering them. And that has that cascading effect. Who wants to be a law enforcement officer if they are going to be in harm's way and they're not empowered? So they, they're given a badge. But what are they going to do with it? And I, I just especially when the, the leadership above them doesn't support them. And that's what that's that's where I will absolutely stand.
0: And I appreciate that because what I'm seeing as retired law enforcement, I see the training has kind of um, been dismissed because it's either not politically correct or it doesn't fit a certain agenda. And so that's a real problem. If you've got guys on the front line that that aren't trained in, in the biggest thing is how to communicate. You know, communication with protesters uh, is, is vital to maybe, you know, kind of bring something down to disengage somebody or to kind of make it a little uh, less, um, you know, anger, bring down the scale of anger a little bit. So, you know, I, I do agree with that. And so what actions, though, should you be taken to that you think should sit to keep citizens safe? And our property secured during this period of riot because I don't believe it's over by any stretch um, you know they're exploiting the death of this man george floyd and by doing this so what kind of actions do you think should be in place to help prevent that
1: well here's so there's judiciary committees and 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 i I know where my strengths and weaknesses are. I know my strength is passion for doing something right, and I know that there are much smarter individuals that have a legal background like um out in uh, in Paris, Tennessee, we have a great representative out there that does have a judicial background, and I would rely on uh, teaming with them to figure out how do we how do we now enforce the law for those that were vandalized, mm-hmm. that were now victims of these riots, and allow them to actually allow those people that were vandalized to actually take action from a civil suit, you know, and come to their defense because. Mm-hmm. If the police were called back because of a mayor, and now it just exposed and endangered the citizens that aren't rioting, I don't know how wrong that is to you, but it is wrong to me. We just now created more risk for those innocent bystanders. So from a legislative standpoint, let's get after this. And... Crime and punishment. I mean, there are books written about it. Those that conduct crime, if there is no punishment, you are not Mm -hmm. going to curve. There's no bell curve for crime. It's just exponential. So punishment has to be in some sort of fashion where it's the state punishing the police or those that were vandalized, allow them, you know, increase the level of punishment against those that rioted against them. Um, And I know the penal code with the, penal system, yeah. we can only afford so yeah. much, but uh, you know, there's got to be that balance. So there's 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 that, and it's just, I think it's a, a tragedy mm-hmm. that our citizens are being violated of their rights. And that we're supposed to serve and protect those that are that are in need.
0: It's a tough time, you know. It definitely is is a tumultuous time uh, throughout the country, and it's very sad. Kind of kind of changing subjects just a little bit here, and, and I want to go back to what you think about how the governor uh, did or did not uh, exceed his constitutional authority when we were under the COVID, you know, scare, basically, you know, the, the lockdowns, um, you know, how do you think or what would you think legislation that you would care to sponsor or support to make sure uh, that this kind of violates? Violation of rights doesn't occur again if we have to go through a second, you know, uh, COVID lockdown period.
1: And we had a thousand, what was it, a thousand increasing cases on Monday. And it's a significant, it's actually rising once again. What I fear is that we're going to repeat the thinking that it worked. An executive order that is legislative in nature is in violation of our state council. That's That's just bottom line. So mm-hmm. a law, or based on the Constitution, is not, not legislated by the executive. branch. So a good leader, whether it be a military leader or just a leader within our, our chamber, a good leader takes responsibility. There are some leaders within the House that have taken responsibility that, we as legislators, and I'm speaking that because uh, you know, we are gonna win this, we need to take responsibility for the people. And as legislators, that's our specialty. We make law, the executive branch you know, affirms or mm-hmm. confirms or denies, and we go back because it's the executive branch, the governor is day-to-day operations. But in this case here, we are violating our own constitution. There are no provisos to the chapters and really with our U.S. Constitution, with all the uh, the amendments. This goes back to my my original comment of, of preparedness. You know, a pandemic is nothing that is a shock. It should not be a shock. Now, there may be, you know, we have a first-time governor. He may not even be used to these levels of decisions. Military leaders are used to making crisis decisions that are life and death. I mean, I can't tell you how many life and death situation decisions I've made. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. Um, and I have lost life because of the decisions I have made and have learned from it. But sometimes you can't predict, you know, the enemy's actions. So dealing with, with something of this nature. You know, I think initial reactions are always, are never the first, are never the right actions. The first news is never the most accurate news. And I think we have to be realistic, too. If we are looking at it from dealing, you know, from a health standpoint, good luck trying to curve human nature over the last several thousand years. If you think that you're going to control every citizen of Tennessee exactly the way you say, and you're wholeheartedly taking the medical field, that this is what you do, you will you will curve the bell, it's unrealistic. And those that deal with people and those that have led and have been led, you know that people do what people do. And, and good on Americans that they are. Free thinkers and they do what they need to do because that's what our constitution allows them to do. Our co- it's called freedom. And you should not be told what to do. And now businesses are, or business owners are going out of business. Where are we to help pick them up? Well, we can't. It, we physically can't do it. So from the beginning, and I've been saying this, I've been saying this from the beginning that we need to apply the resources to those that we know that are the highest of risk. So if a pandemic emerges itself, or it looks like it could be coming back, we apply resources to those that we know that are at risk. You know, it's our elderly. It's the, those that have pre-existing conditions. And to me, the government is there to assist. Some people, you, the government is not there. It's not to mandate. Now, Laws are laws. The government is not to mandate how you live your life. If you choose to follow the CDC guidelines, guess what? The government now has provided every resource possible that if you stay home and you're unemployed because of staying home, guess what? The government has provided those, op- those abilities to do that. Those are the things first. is forcing you into that situation. The government is not there. The executive, more importantly, is not there to make law and govern you that way. So the the number one thing that, that has been done wrong was to dismiss the legislative branch. Understand the majority of the Senate are older than 65, but these processes need to be addressed that we can address and legislate virtually. What was happening for several months, though, during this pandemic was the governor was briefing what was going on to inform the legislators of what was going on and what law was developed in the form of an executive order to regulate the people. It needs to be that way. We got it it backwards. Legislators still need to legislate, especially during a crisis like this. And I think we need to make sure the budget allows to legislate during crisis like this because we're only budgeted for session. And uh, that's, that's the number one failure. If legislators were allowed to legislate, I don't think the governor would have taken, felt like it was his sole responsibility to take action because I don't think he had the background or the ability to make crisis action planning uh, like I have learned Other the military leaders have learned.
0: Well, you know, I I do appreciate your service. I thank you for your service. Um, you, you know, I, I can hope and wish you the best of luck, because I truly feel we need more uh, like yourself in our state legislature, in our Senate, in our Congress, uh, and certainly in the role of governor. And, um, you know, we, we wish you the best here on Daily Roll Call. Great hour talking to uh, Doug Englund, who's running for state Senate in District 22. He answered a lot of questions for us. And so uh, we're going to wrap this up. We hope that you enjoyed the interview. And uh, we'll see and talk to you shortly. This is the Daily Roll Call Podcast. Talk in Tennessee with Kathy Henners.